Welcome to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. Today's episode, The Long Journey, featuring Ryder Avalon. Welcome to MDASH, Ryder. How are you doing? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm doing very well. As we get started, I wanted to start off by asking you, what are some of the words you use to describe yourself in terms of your identities? My identities, um, I guess I would say I'm a woman, trans woman, mixed woman of uh, racial cultures. I would say transsexual, transgender woman. That's about it. How have those identities influenced your thoughts and feelings about healthcare? I've had my own experiences in um, accessing healthcare as a trans person, as a trans woman. I think that it's been um, it's been difficult. It's been unnecessarily difficult, but my experience pales in comparison to so many other trans women. And I I, I think that I've always been very fortunate to, I guess, fall into this place naturally where I think that I I don't I don't uh, I'm not gender nonconforming in a way that um, that uh, many people who adhere to stereotypes would uh, look at as not someone who, who would be able to access this kind of care. But I've still had a lot of roadblocks, you know, and you deal with a lot of um, fascination and uh, that kind of thing, feeling like you're kind of under a, a magnifying glass. And uh, also just other things, you know, darker things. I was sexually assaulted in a medical facility once by a doctor and a number of nurses. And I uh, ended up in a lawsuit with them and was totally crushed by their lawyers, you know. And so it was really tough. There's a lot of uh, trauma there. When you're a young person and you're accessing trans-specific care, you can get taken advantage of in a lot of ways, and you don't know that you're being taken advantage of because the power dynamic between patient and doctor is so um, is even higher for a trans trans woman and a and a doctor. So they'll do you know they'll do they know that they they can do whatever they want, and uh, if you have someone who's not a very uh, virtuous person, they can very much take advantage of you. You know, I'm so sorry that you've had those experiences and that those things have happened to you and been done to you. You know, as you talk about the access piece, but also people being vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Can you say a bit more about that? And if you're not comfortable sharing about your own experience, specifically, just in a more general way, um, what are some ways that that trans women might end up being taken advantage of in a healthcare setting? So that through this interview, we can raise some awareness among folks who may not be sensitive to these issues. Yeah. Many ways, many, many ways, you know, uh, again, my, my experiences pale in comparison to so many stories that I've heard and the people that I, the doctors that I've seen, I've been fortunate enough to see specialists, you know, so many people aren't able to, you know, aren't in a, in a geographic uh, location where they can even access a specialist. So they're having to teach not only trans health, but teach, you know, just the uh, basics of trans 101 to, to someone so that they're able just to get basic respect. Uh, the way that, that you can be vulnerable 
especially sexually vulnerable, um, vulnerable to sexual assault, is just that there is this fascination with trans bodies. And especially for younger people, I think, there's just an expectation of um, a relinquishing of control to authority, the doctor in that case. So there's a lot of situations where people are being prompted to say things or to describe their own experiences as different than what they really are because they feel like, you know, they're at a point of gatekeeping and their their healthcare can be taken away or given based on their answers. I, I remember the first doctor I went to, I was about six months into um, after coming out and I had been doing do-it-yourself. So I was, you know, I was self-medicating. And I'd done a ton of research on it, you know, so I, I, when I went to the doctor, they were very impressed with the regimen I was on. And that was that. They were like, we're going to keep you on this regimen and you've done a great job. But there's other stuff that came along with it where the moment I went in there, I felt like I was, I felt like they were looking at me like some sort of interesting specimen, you know, and it was like, it was just a kind of weird fascination. I felt like an alien and the dynamics of, of what it was, how it was set up wasn't in my, my favor to be able to speak up. Then it came to where they wanted to do a body exam, which I later found out is not um, standard procedure for this kind of thing. So, you know, they, you know, touching on my genitals and touching on my breasts and it's like, oh my gosh. And he's saying things like, oh, you're so small. You know what I mean? That's incredible. You know, or saying, wow, your breasts are already at, you know, Tanner stage four or five. That's incredible, you know. Like this is amazing. I can't believe your results, you know, and um, stuff like that. You know, very just uh, searching for the word. I just felt it was very. Um, I felt very taken advantage of. But I, I also know that I, I needed. I felt like I needed to do what I needed to do to move forward with my life. So it's just a, a tough situation for people to be in, and a, a situation that people shouldn't have to be in. And I don't think that this guy was a bad guy. I think that he was someone who was very fascinated in, um, in wanting to help trans people so much that people became subjects to him and not people. He helped me quite a bit, though. What you're saying makes sense and is consistent with what I've heard from trans friends, which is there is this kind of fascination with trans bodies in a very almost objectifying way. If you go into a, a healthcare provider and you have a cough, you know, or you have hurt your knee, people are getting asked questions about what surgeries they've had that are unrelated to the reason they're going. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and it's also something where I think I it's it's I mean there there there's a misogyny aspect to it as well that I've experienced, especially later on. I remember I was in, when I moved out to Los Angeles, I started I started going to Kaiser Permanente, which is really great. And I, you know, I've been fortunate enough and privileged enough to even afford uh, something like Kaiser Permanente. But I remember I I went to see a doctor about I have I was having pains in my jaw. I had never had anyone in my life tell me that you know suggest that maybe the pain was just all in my mind. You know, there was that, and then I ended up seeing a different doctor. Uh, beyond this doctor and they ended up just uh, I answered a question incorrectly during our interview and he ended up just pretty much dismissing me from that point on and he would talk to my my fiance my boyfriend at the time and just ask him questions and then 
at the end of it, he was just basically like, get her here. She's got to go take these tests and wouldn't even turn to me to give me the directions or, or even try to explain where I was going, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, there's definite a, a definite level of um, misogyny uh, that gets wrapped up in these things. And, and as a trans person, when your your transness is right there on a piece of paper in front of a person, it's like you don't know where they're coming from. You know, it's like you don't know if this is being influenced by transphobia or if this is, you know, being influenced by um, misogyny or if it's uh, how I look or, you know, even at the time I had blonde hair. Is it my blonde hair? I don't, I don't know. What are the kind of questions that you feel like you have to not tell the truth about during a clinical encounter in order to get good care? Because you mentioned earlier, you know, the gatekeeper is there. And if you share everything, they may not help you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been very fortunate in my life. There's these stereotypes, you know, that go along with trans women that have always gone along with the gatekeeping of trans women and trans healthcare, where they'll say, you know, they, they, it used to be, you know, you had to be straight, you know, you had to be um, conventionally attractive, you know, you had to be feminine. Um, stereotypically feminine, um, according to, you know, Western standards, uh, cis-normative standards, run amok, you know, and so I remember when my first, my first doctor's appointment, there were a lot of questions that, in a lot of ways that I would have described, that I described my, my gender or my dysphoria at the time, uh, in ways that I would never have described it to anyone else, you know, I had to say things like, I had to talk about, you know, situations where I was a kid where my parents gave me a a Little Mermaid watch and it was like my favorite watch ever. Stereotypes, basically. Gender stereotypes, things that we gender as a, as a society. You know, I, I had a very mixed childhood, you know, and, I, and I'm a person who has always been very feminine and, and has always had to hide that and has always, like, naturally fallen into these, these um, areas where that are considered stereotypes for trans women. You know what I mean? And also just cis women in general in our society. I've never had to lie so much, generally, as much as other people have had to, you know, because there's people who are, you know, um, cis, who are trans women, who are very masculine, who are, you know, who want to, who do engage in, you know, things, activities that we consider masculine, like sports or, or cars or whatever. And they might have to lie and say, you know, I don't do any of those things. I want to, I, I played with Barbies growing up or something like that. Oh, interesting. So to really conform with this stereotyped ideal of, and also what is the correct way to present as trans and be able to convince a healthcare provider that you're really the gender that you're saying you are. Exactly. Yeah. So that's difficult. I mean, that's got to be really challenging too, because you know, when you think about going back and describing your childhood or how you fe- how how you felt as a child, um, you know, if you have a narrative that falls outside of what some clinicians would say is correct. So let's say, and I've I've known trans folks who said as a child they didn't feel like they were they're the gender that they are now. Yeah. They just they they just felt like they didn't fit, but yeah. they didn't really have a strong sense of it being a gender rela- related issue. And yeah. then as they got older, um, and sometimes in their teens, sometimes in their twenties. So to imagine that if they were to present to a clinician with their real story, would they, 
would they not be treated as respectfully or believed yeah. as much as if they came up with a narrative of, I always wanted to be in ballet. I always exactly. wanted, you know, exactly. And it's, um, it's very detrimental because especially because for, for trans women and trans femmes, uh, trans people really, uh, who, who don't, uh, fall into these, these, um, these stereotypes, they, they'll think that they are trans, you know, and they'll think that they won't, that then they'll just live and they'll suffer and they'll, you know, they'll just try to rationalize it a different way. And there's so many variables that go into um, who a person is and a, and a person's socialization and also how a person uh, reacts to this uh, thing, this, for most people, it's a medical condition, how they react to this medical condition. And that's, the, I think, what everyone needs to remember is just that there's so many variables and... We try to put people in, um, you know, black and white boxes and and because that's just how our brain works to try to understand things. But we have to remember that these labels are not, you know, omnipotent. What do you wish healthcare professionals would stop doing when they interact with you? I mean, you've mentioned the one obvious one. Stop asking people about their genitalia. Mm -hmm. Like if it is not related to why they're there really stop focusing on what's inside people's pants because it is not in any way helpful or appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> but beyond the strange fixation that people have on genitalia, what other things should healthcare professionals stop doing? They should stop with the assumptions. That's the biggest thing. You'd be surprised at how many people who are professional medical professionals really do not understand even themselves, the diversity of uh, people, diversity of biology amongst people. And uh, they kind of will, they kind of think of people in a lot of ways as cookie cutter, you know, as far as their biological sex goes. And that's just not the way it is, you know? Right. And not recognizing it's a continuum. You know, there's an arbitrary line between what body is male and female in an infant. Exactly. Um, it's an arbitrary socially... Um, constructed uh, aspect uh, or, or characteristic that you're going off of to determine a person's entire biology. You know, I think about myself and uh, my atypical biology. And when I was growing up, you know, I always knew myself to be a girl. And I grew up in a very open household. I mean, my parents were very bigoted, but as far as gender stereotypes uh, and gender enforcement, we were very open. I, I like when I was like a teenager, I started growing breasts and I started, uh, I started like lactating a lot and like a lot of other stuff, a lot of other hormonal stuff that was happening. And it was a very confusing time, you know, but because people assumed that I was biologically male, <clears throat> even my doctor wouldn't really touch this. My pediatrician was like, there's some stuff going on here and I'm not even going to really look into it. And I was so embarrassed and my family was so embarrassed that we never looked into it. And um, it took me another like uh, 10 years to actually come out of the closet. I think that people just need to be more open and let people lead. And also just not assume people's, people's biology. That must have been a, a confusing and maybe even frightening experience for you as a teenager to know inside that you're a girl. Um, but to also know that the growing breasts and lactating wasn't something that came along with the body that everyone assumed you had, right? The male assigned body. 
How did you make sense of that? Uh, it was really confusing, you know, because I had a very feminine um, bone, bone structure and a, and a skeletal frame. Um, it was really, it was really in contrast to males in my family. And because like the, the men in my family were all really big and tall and just large people, you know, and I wasn't. So for me, I felt like it's really happening. I'm actually like going through the correct puberty. I've, I've you know, finally, things are finally setting themselves right, you know, um, but I couldn't tell anyone. And where I was, I grew up in Virginia. So I didn't even have any, any LGBT friends, you know, or knew any LGBT people. There was like one gay kid at our high school that was in another grade, you know, at, at our entire high school and was completely, you know, ostracized. It was a, you know, it was a tough place to, to try to be. And I didn't really get to even um, really learn what transness was until I, I left my house and, and moved out on my own. And I moved to New York City and I met trans people and I, um, you know, I met other people and I knew that, that it was a normal thing. And I just had to, at that point, it was just getting over my own internalized transphobia. That saved my life, you know. When you got over your own internalized transphobia, and then from that point forward, you know, connecting with healthcare professionals, did you feel like you could trust healthcare professionals? I did not feel I could trust them at all. But at the same time, I knew that I didn't have to lie that much. But even compared, only, I only had to lie I didn't have to lie that much compared to other people, I should say. I still had to lie way more than any person should have to lie to their doctor. And what would have happened if you had told the truth? Do you think that they would have said you're not trans? I, I don't I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't I know that I, when I went I didn't have any, you know, psychiatric papers or sure. anything like that to back up anything. I, I, I showed up dressed the way that I, I normally dress. I guess you could say the stereotypical clothing for a, a woman of my age and my and my generation. I don't know. I got the vibe that they felt like I fit I fit their idea of what a trans a young trans woman was supposed to be, basically. So you kind of had this innate sense of this is the person I need to be in order to be able to get the care I need. Yeah, exactly. And I felt like fortunately I didn't have to change myself that much. Someone else would have had to change themselves a lot more. And again, it's getting much better. It's much, much better. You know, it's the kind of thing where a lot of times they, they probably wouldn't have to lie, but they do anyways because it's it's a risky thing and, and so much is um, is riding on this. You know, this is your health care, but it, it still is that situation where you, you, in many situations, you do have to lie. I know a lot of people who won't even be honest about being non-binary or won't be honest about not being straight, you know, or being polyamorous or something like that. Anything that is not mainstream is risky, you know, when it comes to this sort of stuff. When, when, because it's just, it's just a power, a power dynamic. You had mentioned earlier that you identify as someone who is of mixed, I think you said like mixed cultural and racial background. How has that impacted your willingness to trust healthcare professionals and your interactions with healthcare professionals? feel like as a person of color, I have a little bit of a unique experience just because I don't have, I'm very light-skinned. So I, um, I generally don't get the anti-blackness that my friends get, or I'm able to sidestep it a little bit, I guess. 
I don't know. You know, I don't know how my racial identity plays into my transness. I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about gender and not as much time thinking about race. <laughs> you know what I mean? It makes total sense. After you moved to New York City, what kind of a different experience did you have or, or how was it different in terms of how you saw yourself in the world as a person? Everything changed. There was a very extremely profound change. When I was in New York, I, I still hadn't gotten on hormonal therapy, so I was still very dysfunctional in my, um, just in my brain chemistry, you know? And it was really hard. And, and when I was in New York, I hadn't really accepted myself yet. And it was very hard to go back and forth. Like, it was, like, extremely, extremely um, hard on my, my psyche to have to go, especially because I was a musician and I was a producer and I was working with hip-hop acts and I was working in all these extremely uh, masculine environments where I had to hide myself. And then I would, you know, go to my friends in the village and uh, be myself, like, right afterwards, you know? So it's like going from you know, deep closeted, masculine hip hop kind of environment to the complete opposite, you know, in the span of 45 minutes, in the span of a subway ride, you know, I, I was not in a very healthy place as far as my, my self-esteem back then. And it wasn't even something I was aware of until uh, I got better. And so much of the dysfunction that I had and the depression that I had, I wasn't aware of until it was gone. And uh, it went and it, and it left when I got on hormonal therapy. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very profound thing when when people are experiencing things that they've experienced for so long that they're not even aware that they're experiencing it fully anymore. It's kind of how I can uh, describe it. It's a good description. It's almost like if it's cloudy for a really long time, you almost forget how good it feels when it's sunny because it's just been cloudy so long. Yeah, or if you've never even experienced the sunlight, you know, right. you just, you don't know. And I remember, you know, a couple of years later, I ended up, I was living in Virginia Beach doing music and um, I knew that I was depressed because I was like suicidal and I was planning how I was going to commit suicide. But it was a month later when I got on hormonal therapy, when, when I realized just how deep I had always been depressed, how dysfunctional my, my entire thought process or, or entire just existence mentally had been is something that people don't really think about and as far as hormonal therapy because most people who are not on hormonal therapy describe HRT as something that makes you look different and something that makes you look more like how you feel or look more cis basically and for so many other people it's that but it's also a very very much a mental thing because so much of myself changed before my physical body changed. You know, before I had any physical results, I had so many mental results. Well, it sounds like the hormones were really life-saving and not because of what they did to your body externally, but because what they did to you internally and how you, how you felt. Yeah, very much. And I can only speak for myself. I felt like my body was always very feminine. I just didn't have breasts. So when I transitioned, I was actually really scared about growing breasts. I had I had grown breasts when I was a teenager, but they kind of settled down after a couple of years, and I was able to hide them. 
So it was very scary where, where I was going to have this body where I wasn't going to be able to hide who I was at all. And then as soon as I, I got on hormonal therapy and my breasts actually started growing and they started looking normal, I wanted them to grow more. It was also very weird. I mean, this might be TMI, but I remember when I first started, when I was a teenager and I started growing breasts, like my nipples grew as well. So it was weird having this chest where my nipples were like as big as my breasts for a while. And then on hormonal therapy, everything kind of just worked out and evened out. So it was great. <laughs> It sounds like you've, you had a really good result in terms of you're happy with yourself, Yeah, you know, which is the best result anyone can ever have. Let's say you go to the clinic with a cold or you go to a clinic for something unrelated to your transness. Do you find that healthcare professionals pry a lot? Early in my transition, I felt that they did. Uh, later on, not so much. I don't know if I can attribute that to, uh, it's probably a combination of just me transitioning more to the point where I can blend more, where people kind of treat you how they see you, you know? They've been taught that if you're different, if you're gender nonconforming, visually gender nonconforming, maybe they, they don't need to respect you as much, especially for people who are perceived to be on the feminine spectrum of things. There can be a real derision that goes along, an inherent kind of slight derision that goes along with how they think of you. And it's really tough because You'll go in there and you'll have, you know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of health issues um, unrelated to being trans. Uh, like I've got de degenerated discs in my neck and I've got uh, some scoliosis and loidosis. You know, so I'm always accessing care. One of the things is that they'll do is they'll look at you and they'll just be like, you're an attractive, healthy woman. You don't need any help. You're like, whatever you're, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're healthy and they'll, they'll completely minimize what you're going through. I've never had one person in my life suggest that the pain might be in my head. There are opposite ends of the spectrum too, where you'll be so on edge expecting discrimination or expecting some kind of malarkey that I make the situation more difficult, you know, needlessly. So when you go to a healthcare provider and you have your walls up and you're expecting bad treatment, what would that look like? It could look like a lot of things. I think about the, the, the situation that I went through and I just, I laugh because I'm, I was just really kind of <laughs> looking for this kind of, this kind of altercation, you know, because I, I just felt like I was on edge and expecting it, it where it was like, I, I can't remember exactly what happened, but like they left the room and I looked at my paper and it said transsexual dysphoria, gender treatment for gender dysphoria. And I was just like, you know, why is this on my paper? I, I'm here for, you know, my bone structure problems. They shouldn't know this stuff. And, you know, I brought it up and I'm like, what are you doing here? You know, what are you trying to pull here? And they're just like, you know, they don't care about, they didn't care at all about me being trans, you know? So I'm just like, oh my gosh, calm down writer. But there was other situations outside of um, the medical scenario that I kind of had that same kind of vibe is... Like I remember when I, early on in my transition, there were multiple instances where I'd be out and about and people would be looking at me and I wasn't used to being, to being looked at. So I would give them like the death stare back at them and I would steal myself and I would give them just like, I'm not going to take this, this kind of harassment. And I give them like the laser beam death stare back at them. <laughs> and I'd realize that they, they, and they just smile back at me you know, and uh, go about their day. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, what, what are you doing, Ryder? Like you're, 
you just like like totally like tried to intimidate a nice old lady, you know, <laughs> and at Walmart. Well, and it makes me wonder if before you transitioned, if you didn't feel seen. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very true. I think that people experience they, and they react to dysphoria in so many different ways. They, some people will go and throw themselves into something and go out there, you look at like Caitlyn Jenner or you look at Lynn Conway, people who had to hold on to this dysphoria and hide themselves for generations longer than so many or decades longer than, you know, so many people are able to do today. And they had to throw themselves into an endeavor and that became their whole life and that became their obsession. Other people throw themselves in the endeavor that they throw themselves into is drugs and alcohol or suicide. So it's a different, it's a different thing. People, and it has, I'm sure it has to do with your environment. I'm sure it has to do with the other amounts of trauma trauma that you're, um, you've been exposed to. But yeah, I can, I can, I can uh, identify with that because I threw myself into music. All I did was, you know, I lived in recording studios and slept in recording studios. And that's all I did for, for many, many years. And I didn't have a girlfriend or a boyfriend <laughs> and I didn't have, I, I didn't have a first kiss until, um, in my twenties when I, when I came out or anything like that, I had never even been to a nightclub or anything like that. So it's like, so much of yourself is hidden and so much of yourself is just undeveloped. Right. Well, it makes sense in a lot of ways that after you came out as who you are, then you go through all those developmental things that other people do when they grow into the body of who they are when they're a teenager. So, yeah. So, I mean, it makes complete and total sense. Yeah. You just do. So you're just socializing a little bit late, you know, you're, you're just a couple years later than other people. But uh, another thing that I'd like to talk about that I think I, I kind of overlooked is the um, when we're talking about the power dynamic between the doctor and the patient and also just society and the trans person is internal self-confidence and the ability to assert yourself as a woman, assert your gender to other people and to yourself. Because there's so much, there's, there are questions that you could ask a trans person that's very early in their transition or questioning and you might not get the, the correct answer just because they, they don't have the self-confidence to, to tell you, you know what I mean? Or really to assert, assert it themselves. What's something a healthcare professional might ask that the person who's talking with them and answering the questions may not feel confident enough? Well, they could say something like, and this is just off the top of my head, but this is, they could say something like, you know, what is it that makes you feel like you're a woman, you know? Or what is it that makes you feel like you're a man? And someone may not know yet. Exactly. You might not know because it's a very nebulous thing. What does that mean to feel like a man or a woman? You know, right. it's like we know that there are you know structures in the brain and that and we think that there are genes or a multiple of genes or misfirings of hormones uh, that cause transsexuality. And we know that gender identity is observable for the most part, but we don't really know like what that means, you know, to feel a certain gender, you know? And um, it's very hard for a person who is sitting there, has been called a man or called a boy their whole life, but who may not even feel like they look like a woman to assert themselves as a That's woman. That's a great point. You know what It's I mean? a really good point. If you've met one person who identifies as X, Y, Z, you've met one person, right? Everybody is totally different. And I'm always fascinated 
by anybody's choice of language because I want to know more about why people use the words they use to describe themselves. So, for example, for me, I identify as a lesbian, but I have friends who identify as dykes. And I'm always really fascinated by like, okay, how did people like own that word? So, you know, um, and yeah, I wish I could rock that word, but yeah, it's just, it, for whatever reason, it doesn't feel like it describes me. So for you, you use both transgender and transsexual. And so I wanted to know a little bit more about, about why in particular transsexual, like why that word, um, works for you and why you like it. Well, I think that transsexual is like, it, it, the term has been kind of perverted in a lot of ways and through through medical professionals and just generations of misuse. So a lot of people will think like transsexual re- refers to people who have pleaded all their transition and, you know, done all these surgeries and stuff like that. When in reality, transsexual really just refers to a trans person who, and they don't even have to be binary, identified, a trans person for whom their condition is a medical condition. Some trans folks really don't like the word transsexual because it has the word sexual in it. And then it kind of, you know how we've ended up with, unfortunately, sexual orientation and gender identity are such a like mishmash in the minds of most people who are cis and heterosexual. The whole thing melts their brains. Yeah. Uh, I was just curious about about why you like that word and why you use it. Yeah. I just feel like... I don't want to, I understand why anyone would feel that way. And I understand the reality of living in a cis society, in a, in a cis supremacist society. I have a real respect for words and I don't like to change my words based on bigots or bigoted opinions. You know what I mean? I don't, for me, it's like, you know, they can't tell the difference because it has the word sexual in it. And there are no bad words for people to describe themselves. And that's one thing that I try to teach healthcare professionals that I work with. And when I do teach, whether it's, you know, in a degree program or doing a presentation to let people know whatever word someone uses to describe themselves, that's the word. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? There's no right or wrong. The only wrong word is you applying a label to someone else that Mm -hmm. they didn't apply to themselves. Exactly. And I I, I completely agree with that. You know, I think that I just also just want to be specific. You know, transgender is such an umbrella term. I just, you know, just want to be uh, specific. But it's also like like the word queer, you know. I'm totally fine with people applying the, the label queer to me. But I'd never apply it to myself just because it's like you with, with Dyke. It's right. just like, it doesn't feel right for me. I feel inauthentic owning it for myself. That's a good way to put it. Now, when you transitioned, you know, for, for anyone, whether they are cis or trans, going to a healthcare provider and having your history taken is always a bit of, it's always a bit clunky when it comes to the relationship in sexual history. Did you notice any difference at all? And maybe there hasn't been a difference when you were occupying what appeared to be a male body and now occupying a female body. Any difference in how healthcare professionals approached taking a sexual history? Uh, I couldn't really say that specifically because that part specifically just because I was a virgin before I transitioned. So I didn't have a sexual history. So that part of the questionnaire wouldn't really be something I'd even answer. Okay. Well, but it's, you know, it's interesting too. So many people never had a sexual history taken regardless of gender identity. But I was just curious because in many ways, even though the journey that you've been on has been an incredibly difficult one, you also have this unique perspective of having lived in a body that was read as masculine or male and living in a body that is female. And 
not yeah. many people have had that experience of walking the earth both ways. No. So, no, it's a, uh, it's you know, I mean, it goes back. They they say it's the we're the warriors of the divine feminine and the divine masculine. I think that myself specifically is even uh, I've had an even more unique experience because I've been perceived as many many different things and different periods in my life treated very differently. When I was younger, I was looked at as more urban, more a more person of color. I was treated like that. I've been profiled by police as people, you know, when before I transitioned, I was arrested once because they tried to pin a robbery on me. I was waiting outside of, of school and I got arrested and they said they tried to pin a robbery on me. They said that my, my friend had given me up and I didn't know who they were talking about. I was I, I went to an alternative high school that was 40 miles away from my house. So I was not even in the town of people that I knew. And fortunately, my school was able to vouch that I had been in school all day and, you know, stuff like that happening. So, and then later on being perceived as a white person and then being perceived as a white male and being perceived as an, then an androgynous male then and, and dealing with that in Virginia and then being perceived as a visibly trans woman, then being perceived as just a cis woman, a white cis woman usually. So I've been perceived as many different things that I've been treated as many different things. So I try to remember all of these experiences because it can be hard when you've lived a certain way for a number of years and you haven't, ha I haven't had anyone ever question my gender, you know, in many years, you know, so it's like, it's easy to forget how it is for other people. And I try to remember that, you know, having coming from a place of, well, half my family's black, half my family's Haitian, half my family's Jewish and being perceived as all these different things, going to private schools, going to public schools, black schools, white schools, living in, living in Norfolk, one of the worst streets in Norfolk, one of the worst neighborhoods and living in Philadelphia and Germantown and in Bushwick going from white and black areas. And it's just a whole lot of different experiences that I don't think that most people ever, ever get to experience. This was fantastic, Ryder. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on MDASH. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For show notes, visit www.em-dash-podcast.com.